All right, kids, uh, my question for you this morning is this. Have you ever been summoned to a meeting? Maybe it was with a teacher or a parent or a coach or in the principal's office or to some kind of meeting with some kind of authority figure when you didn't know what the meeting was going to be about. You didn't know if it was going to be something good or if it was going to be something bad. Anybody ever had, a, had an experience like that? Uh, Henry, you want to tell me about it? That's right. You don't know if your behavior has been good or bad. You don't know if you've done something wrong. Anybody else know that experience a little bit? Yeah. Some of the adults in the room, some of the big kids in the room. I agree. I still live with some of that uh, tension in my heart. Um, And so so my my follow-up question for us all is this then. Uh, The next time uh, that you're called into a meeting that you don't know what it is about, what is it that you can do... Uh, to make sure that it's going to be a good meeting. What are some of the things we can do to make sure that the next time we're called before the authority, we know it's going to be a good meeting? Team. Dress rightly. Dress rightly. Dress to impress. I like it. Jubilee. Ask what it's going to be about. Or pray. Good. Yeah. Charlie, one more. Okay, Siri might help you out. I like it. I like it. Okay, what I would say, in general, we want to do everything that we can do to to be in the right, right? We want to do what we can do to be prepared so that whenever we're called into a meeting, we we can have peace about it and not be anxious about it. Well, kids, that's, that's kind of what we're talking about in our sermon this morning. Except we're not just talking about um, any uh, authority. We're talking about meeting with an ultimate authority. And we're not just talking about any old meeting, but we're talking about an ultimate meeting. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about how we want to make sure that when we get called to the ultimate meeting with the ultimate authority, that we've done everything in our lives that we can do to make sure that that meeting is one that we're looking forward to and not one that we're fearful of. Okay? So on your activity sheets, you've got some questions to help you follow along with the sermon. And if anybody's willing to, after the service, I would love for you uh, to come find me and tell me how you are going to be prepared for that big day. All right. Church, today we are looking at four passages of Scripture from the lectionary readings for this week. And I don't know if you caught a common theme in these passages as they were read, but all four of them have something to do with the salvation of God and of the Lord's deliverance from the perils of this world on the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, there's still three weeks left in the church calendar before we begin a new year with the start of the season of Advent. And as you uh, likely know, Advent is a season that is all about preparing our hearts and our minds for the coming of the Lord. It's a season where we look back with remembrance on Jesus' first appearance 
and we look forward with hope and anticipation uh, to His return. And so in this way, uh, these passages today are very Advent-like scriptures, which both surprised me and frustrated me. Because if any of you know me, you know that I do not like celebrating a season before its proper time. Okay, I cannot stand when pumpkin spice flavoring shows up before Labor Day. Or when Christmas displays are in stores before Thanksgiving. Or as Jim and as probably many of you have been frustrated by, I do not like playing much Christmas music in the season of Advent. I'm a firm believer in waiting for the proper time to celebrate. But this week I learned that in the Church of England, these final three weeks of the liturgical year are known as the Sundays before Advent. So they've already begun turning a corner towards Advent across the pond. And I guess that if the lectionary tells me that these are our passages for today, and that it's time to start preparing for Advent, I can't really argue with that. Because generally it's unwise to argue against centuries of church tradition and history. And so for the next couple of weeks, it appears that we're going to be in a bit of a primer for Advent and for the Christmas season. As our lectionary passages focus on the return of our Lord to his earth. Now the promise of Jesus' return to this world is a huge part of our Christian belief and hope. We proclaim that we believe that this is true each and every week as a church when when we recite the Apostles' Creed. We, We say together, we believe that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. We also proclaim this great hope in our communion liturgy every Sunday. When we say together that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ Thank you. Not only do we regularly proclaim this great hope... We also pray for it to happen soon, whenever we pray as Jesus taught us, saying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' return, when he will bring the fullness of his kingdom to the earth, is a core tenet of our faith and a monumental part of God's plan for the salvation of the world. In the grand arc of God's salvation history, this is how the whole story ends or begins, depending on how you look at it. God created a good world. Sin ruined it. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is redeeming and restoring and renewing it. And in the end, Jesus will come again to consummate or to complete His salvific work as He does away with evil once and for all, and as He makes all things new. This is the great hope of the church, and this is where history is heading. And our passages today are all in agreement on that. But they're not in agreement about everything regarding that day. Because while all the passages are related to the coming day of the Lord, they don't all have the same thing to say about that day. One of them indicated it will be a day of dread, while another implied a day of delight. One said it will be a day of judgment. Another supposed it will be a day of joy. 
One said it will be full of fear. One said it will be filled with feasting. And so while the scriptures do tell us that one day Jesus will return, what they don't say is what that experience will be like for each and every one of us who faces it. And the question we want to ask this morning is, what will that day be like for you? And what, if anything, can you do to prepare yourself so that when you're called into the meeting of all meetings with the great authority of your life, you will be ready? That's what we're asking today. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open them with me. Uh, Get ready. This is complicated. To Amos chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Psalm 70, and Matthew 25. We're going to be in all of those passages today as we consider what we may encounter on the day of the Lord and how to be prepared. Now, the first passage that we're going to look at is Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, where God's prophet warns God's people that they want nothing to do with the day of the Lord. And that message would have been a huge surprise to the Israelites Because they were expecting that the day of the Lord would be a a glorious day in which their enemies would be vanquished and all would be made right. But Amos deeply disturbs that hope with a sharp question when he asks them, why would you have the day of the Lord? And he warns them, woe to you who desires that day. And then he goes on throughout the rest of the passage to warn them that the day of the Lord is not going to be at all what they expected. Amos said it will be darkness and not light. Gloom with no brightness in it. A day when when they thought they would be escaping the troubles of this world only to find themselves face to face with an entirely different type of problem when they encounter the living God. And Amos tells them throughout the rest of the passage why this was going to be a day of disaster rather than a day of deliverance. When he explains to them that God was not pleased with their worship because it was having no impact on their lives. So it's not that the people weren't worshiping, they were. They were celebrating all of their religious feasts and solemn assemblies. They were bringing their offerings and making their sacrifices. They were playing their instruments and singing their songs. They were worshiping. But the Lord wanted none of it because their worship wasn't changing. Their worship had become about their worship and not about their transformation. It had become focused on them and what they were doing and not upon God and what he was doing among them. And as a result, God rejected their worship. And in doing so, he rejected them. And in this passage, there is a profound warning for us as the church, as we sit here in the midst of a service of our worship. And that warning is this, that if we ever begin to think that this is what it's all about, that it's about our our beautiful liturgy or this beautiful building, Or it's about the rightness of our our Anglican theology or our church polity. Or that our faith is about our attendance or performance here in the church. Are we doing it often enough? Are we doing it well enough? If 
we ever begin to think that this is what it's all about, that it's about us and the way that we do worship, and we lose sight of the Lord and the reason why we do all of this, if we ever make this about us rather than about Him, if we make it about our performance rather than His provision, if we make it about what we're doing for Him rather than what He's doing in us, if we do the work of worship, but we lose sight of the why of worship, then we should know that God will not be pleased with our performance here. And we should be warned that our meeting with Him on that great and glorious day will not at all be what we hope for or expect. The prophet Amos makes clear that for some, even for some who believe they are a part of the people of God, For some, the day of the Lord will be a disaster. But for others, the day of the Lord will be a deliverance. That's what we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So you can flip there in your Bibles for a moment. Because in in that passage, Paul reminds God's people to persevere through the trials and sorrows of this life because one day the Lord is going to return. And at that time, those who have died will be raised from their graves. And then those who are still alive will be caught up with them. And and they will all be together with the Lord forever. And we know that unlike in the Amos passage, this meeting with the Lord is a positive one. That God's people are, are and should be looking forward to. And we know that because at the end of this passage, Paul says that we should encourage one another with these words. This hope is meant to build us up. And to strengthen us in our waiting. So here the prospect of a meeting with the Lord is an occasion that God's people are told to wait for. Not one that they are warned from. Because for them it will be a day of joy and not a day of judgment. And so the obvious question that presents itself in light of these two passages is, what's the difference? Why in one occasion is the day of the Lord warned against and in another it is welcomed? Why in one occasion is it viewed as a disastrous day and in another it's welcomed as a day of deliverance? Why the variance in opinion and experience related to the day of the Lord? There's a number of clues to these different day of the Lord experiences that are scattered throughout all of our passages from this morning. Which all lead to one common key that unlocks for us the mystery of this day. To begin to gather those clues, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 70 for a moment. Psalm 70 both begins and ends with essentially the same plea. The psalmist opens in verse 1 with the cry, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And then he closes in verse 5, declaring, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my helper and deliverer. O God, do not delay. And so the psalm both opens and closes with an acknowledgement of our need for God to be at work in the salvation of our lives. The psalmist is acknowledging that he cannot save himself. He needs the help of the Lord. And in verse 4 he writes, May those who love your salvation say evermore, 
God is great. And therein lies the key to whether or not the day of the Lord will be a day of joy or a day of judgment when your time comes. If you love the salvation of the Lord, you will declare that God is great. If you don't love his salvation, then you won't. Now, in the Old Testament, the exact plan of God's salvation hadn't yet fully been revealed, made clear. The sacrificial system pointed forward to the fact that atonement for sin would need to be made in order to be saved. But the Israelites didn't know exactly what that would look like. They knew that God would have to save them, but they didn't yet know how he would save them. We see this veiled promise of salvation in the Amos passage which we looked at earlier, where where after God rebuked His people for their empty worship, He ended with the word of hope when He said to them, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We often read that and make it about us going and doing justice. There may be an element of that there, but there's a deeper and a more important truth as well. So I believe what Amos is saying is not is, is that what the people needed wasn't more empty worship and it wasn't more false religion or, or more going through the motions with their hearts unengaged. But instead, what the people needed was a justice and a righteousness that would come from above in a never ending flow. They needed something that was from outside of themselves, something that was from beyond themselves to make their situation right. But what was that? The people of God in the Old Testament didn't know. They just had to trust that God would provide what they needed. But in our passage from 1 Thessalonians, we see what that provision was. In that passage, one last time. Paul reminds God's people in verse 14 that the reason that they did not need to fear death or dying and the reason that they didn't need to be worried about the day of the Lord was because they had believed that Jesus died and rose again. This is what all of the clues from the Old Testament were about. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was the salvation plan of God that the psalmist was pointing to and trusting in, though he did not yet know what it was. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the justice and the righteousness of God, which flows down to us from above in a never-ceasing stream. Romans 3 says that Jesus is the one who is just, And the justifier of those who believe. He is the justice of God. Who justifies by his grace. Romans 3 also says that Jesus is the righteousness of God. Who makes us right before God. Through faith. By believing. Jesus is the one that all of our Old Testament readings today were pointing to. It's as St. Augustine has famously said that in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. And in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. 
This has always been God's plan for our salvation. It was hidden in the Old Testament. It's revealed to us in the New Testament. And it all comes together in Jesus, who God sent to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserved to die. He met the righteous requirements of the law through his perfect life. And he bore the penalty of our sin in his body upon the cross when he died a sacrificial death. And having risen from the grave, He now offers to all who believe in Him His righteousness and God's forgiveness through His work on the cross. This is why Jesus is the only way to salvation. It's why His name is the only name by which we might be saved. It's why there's no other path that we can follow to find our way to God. No other means to find forgiveness for the wrongs that we've done. Jesus is the salvation of God. He is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And when we know this, but when we've entrusted our life to Jesus as our Lord and Savior... When we have believed that he died and rose again for us, as Paul said in Thessalonians. Then we can look forward to meeting God on the day that he returns with eager anticipation. We can long for the day of his appearing and love the day of his appearing, knowing that there will be no judgment on that day because Jesus has already borne our judgment. And there will be no rejection on that day because Jesus has already been forsaken for us. And there will be no death that day because Jesus has already died our death. And all the terrible things that Amos warns God's people about on the coming day of the Lord, those who trust in Jesus need not fear because Jesus has already experienced them for us. So that we do not have to. Instead, that day for those who trust in the Lord will be like a glorious reunion. Between the creator and his created. Between a lover and his beloved. Between a father and his children. Where all that is wrong will be made right. And where all that we've longed for has come to pass. For all who believe in Jesus, that day will be pure joy. But for those who don't know Jesus, it won't be. For those who've never trusted in God's salvation, who have never accepted His righteousness and justice sent to us, for those who haven't let Jesus take care of their sin, for them the return of the Lord will be a day of darkness and not light. Of gloom with no brightness. For those who do not know the salvation of God, the day of the Lord will be a day of judgment. So the question for us becomes how can we make sure that we're ready on that day? That's what our gospel passage this morning from Matthew 25 was all about. It was all about making sure that you are ready. So that at that unexpected hour, when our Lord returns, we are found waiting for Him.
On that day, you won't be able to depend upon anyone else. What your parents believe won't matter. What other religions have told you won't be helpful. No matter how good you've been, it will make no difference. The only thing that will matter on that day is if you are ready for Jesus. And church, please hear me. God's desire is that everyone would be saved. He is being patient with us right now because He doesn't want anyone to perish. But He wants for everyone to come to repentance, to find life in Him. But He will not wait forever. One day, the Lord will return. And our Gospel passage is asking, will you be ready on that day? I pray that you will. For God's glory and for your good. Amen.